have a seat. Now, I don't want to, we have much to, to go through in this passage. It is rich. It is, as the, the preachers of old used to say, it is a passage pregnant with teaching. So we've much, we have much to, to look at, to consider, to hear God speak to us. So I'll just say this as a, by way of introduction. Having read and having um, looked at the previous two chapters, the desire and the hope for a king, we come now to chapter 3, and, and the, the sentiment that we get is that the king has been hiding for long enough. He's been concealed for too long. And now is the time for the herald of God, for the herald of the king to announce his arrival, to shout out and to cry out, Here he, here he, the king is coming, the kingdom is at hand. Matthew's gospel is about the kingdom of God. That is the, the, its defining feature. No other gospel, not Luke, not Mark, not John, focus so much, focuses so much on this one theme. Christ is the king and the kingdom is being installed. The main note of the narrative dominates the first two chapters. Uh, the main note of the kingdom dominates the first two chapters of this narrative. It's the wise man coming to see the babe who is to be the king. And we see the reverence there at the king's cradle, at our Lord's cradle, the reverence, but also the horror that ensued. We see the, the, the wrath of this false king who's on the throne, but we also see the divine protection of God for this child. So now we hear the voice of the king's harbinger, of the king's herald, the morning star. He comes and he will tell us of the coming of one who is greater than he. So we will look at this in three points. First, I want us to spend some time considering the man, considering John the Baptist. Then we'll spend some time briefly considering his message. And thirdly, and certainly not, not the least important of the points, we'll consider the, the motivation or the matter that led John the Baptist or what John the Baptist was preaching about. So the man, John the Baptizer, let us examine him. Before that, let me just mention Matthew, uh, Matthew 3, uh, from Matthew 2, verse uh, 23 to Matthew 3, verse 1, we have a, a gap of 30 years. 30 years of history that he's not concerned uh, to tell us what happened in the in-between. Apart from the account of Jesus visiting the temple when he was 12 by Luke. In fact, the whole, the Bible, scripture, doesn't really, is not really concerned to tell us uh, the, the, the bringing up of Jesus. We know a bit. We know that he must have lived in Nazareth for most of his life, if not all of it. Because he was known as Jesus from Nazareth. 
So he didn't just spend there a couple of years and then was traveling around. He must have spent quite a fair bit of, if not all of that time, as an inhabitant, as a citizen of Nazareth. We know as well from, from the history of the Gospels that he took uh, his adopted father's uh, trade. He was a carpenter. But that's just about it. We don't know much more. We also assume that during these 30 years between Matthew 2, uh, the end of Matthew 2 and the beginning of Matthew 3, that during these years Joseph died because he's nowhere to be seen in the rest of the Gospels. That's an assumption, but a fairly safe one. Very little is told, us, told to us about Jesus' upbringing. Yet, we can rest safely assured that the information that we have, the history that is recorded for us, is all that we need to have. And that where Scripture has no voice, God's people should have no ears. So let us go to John. He's introduced to us in this, uh, at the beginning of chapter 3 in a, in a rather intriguing manner. You would suppose that Matthew would give us a biography. That Matthew would give us some background information on who John is. But like the, the ancient prophet Elijah, and this theme we'll speak a little bit more about, he enters the stage of history with little introduction. He enters the stage of history with one single word message. Repent. Repent. Matthew is not concerned to tell us a lot about John. We have information about uh, John's family, but it comes from, to us from uh, the evangelist Luke, from the Gospel of Luke. And I assume that that is because Matthew knows the audience to, to which he's writing this, this gospel. He knows that the, the primary audience reading this gospel will be Jews. And any Jew living in the first century Israel, they would know. They would know perfectly well who John the Baptist was. They would have heard the stories. They would know what, was going, what had taken place years ago, decades ago. Luke, for instance, who writes to a much more gentilic uh, and less uh, aware audience of the, of the things that had taken place in, uh, in Israel years before, he kind of tries to give a little bit more perspective, a little bit more background. Uh, he provides uh, a substantial amount of information on John. But not Matthew. Matthew knows that the, list, the readers will understand. He just comes in, guns blazing, and he tells us, this man, he's come. And so what do we learn about John from this account from Matthew? Well, we, we learn something about how his ministry fulfills scripture. We learn something about the focus the mission or uh, his mission. We learn something about his manner. We, we learn something about his mandate. And something as well about his message, but we'll consider that on the second point. So John's ministry fulfills scripture, number one. John's uh, ministry fulfills prophecy. John had a high, heavenly, glorious calling God called him specifically for this. He called him specifically to be the herald, 
the arbinger of the kingdom, to be the morning star shining before dawn, before the sun rises, to be that gentle summer breeze that blow, that, that's so refreshing in the hot summer before the kingdom comes, to be that morning mist that precedes sunrise. And he knew this. Matthew here puts it in the third person. He speaks of, uh, he uses the prophecy uh, in the third person. But if you, we won't turn there. But in John uh, chapter 1 verse 23, John the Baptist says of himself, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John knew his heavenly vocation. And that's why he was so bold and so clear and so straightforward. This is a prophecy of Isaiah 40, verse 3. And yet again, as, a, uh, as we have considered in chapter 2, Matthew is extremely concerned to showcase to this Jewish audience of his original, uh, Jewish audience of his, how all these things are in fulfillment of Scripture. For Matthew, you see, fulfillment of prophecy is Jesus Christ. The message of Scripture, the message of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi was about Christ was pointing forward to the Messiah. Jesus himself, he knew this about him. I am he who has testified by, in the law and the prophets, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. What is interesting about John's uh, ministry is that you see that he is not some kind of gung-ho uh, adventurer that came out of the blue decided that this was his calling in life that he arrives with by his own initiative parachuting in, in the, into history he does not appear out of thin air his arrival his message were precisely predicted and he arrives to, to fulfill God's word well talk more about this but he does not promote himself he knows that he is there to promote another he does not create his own message he does not preach what he desires what he invents or what the scribes and the pharisees have told him to say he does not pre preach this kind of positive thinking uh, word of faith message Soothing the, 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 the egos of the listeners. Why? Because he's, he knows that the message he has, his ministry, is one of fulfilling God's calling. It's very well and very good if we all would understand this, brothers and sisters. It would be very good for us to see ourselves in the same light that John the Baptist saw himself. That the message we have to proclaim is greater than the messengers we are. That we do not make the message. That we are just instruments, conduits. We do not origi originate it, we just convey it. And that should embolden us all to be faithful witnesses to him. 
Now, secondly, speaking of John himself, his mission. There is something about the timing, uh, and there is something about the, uh, the goal of his mission. John's mission was to prepare for the coming of the kingdom of God, for the coming of God himself. The timing is, is, is very interesting. It's at, at the right time, just in time. It is at the point that the history of the Israel was hitting its lowest again. There was chaos everywhere, politically and religiously, spiritually and, and secularly. From the palace of Tiberius Caesar in Rome, to the governments of Judea and Galilee, to the corruption and violence, uh, there was corruption and violence running wild. From Rome to Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, all these men, they are historically uh, verifiable men. They are told, that we are told of in Scripture. All these men were some of the worst men that ever this world has seen, morally depraved. And they ruled over people who were not much better. On the religious scene, religious scene, the situation, you could say, was even bleaker, was even more corrupt. The priesthood, the priesthood of, the, of Israel was corrupted. The Sadducees, they were the, 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 the lineage and the, the dynasty that there was technically the, the priesthood. And we all know how they were. You don't need to go much further into Matthew or one of the Gospels to see that they had turned the temple worship into a den of robbers. They were morally corrupt. They were an elite that had surrendered to financial and political interests. They were more concerned about, about politics than they were about religion, about spirituality. And yet the Pharisees were there as well, and they were not much better. In turn, they were, the Pharisees, although more, much more apparently concerned with religion, it was basically the blind leading the blind. The, the Pharisees only had a, a sort of outward religion that was for them a platform of proeminence. They, they like to be propped up. I'm a Pharisee. I'm one of those who's, uh, that's the meaning of the term Pharisee, I'm one of those who's been set apart. And yet it's the blind leading the blind. They have this heavy-handed legalism that oppresses the population. And it's to this environment, in this timing, that John the Baptist comes. He does not come when everything is nice and well. He comes to a depraved generation, firmly surrounded by darkness. And it's worth noting as well that John the Baptist comes into the scene 400 years after the last prophecy was heard, after the last prophet was called. 400 years of silence since God last spoke through Malachi. The last prophecy was this. It's recorded for us in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah. The prophet before the coming of the great dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse 400 years 
But this prophecy was fulfilled. According to Jesus, John the Baptist is the one who comes in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And the message is quite simple. Or, uh, uh, it's a kingdom that is approaching. John was not concerned with pleasantries. He was not a convenience prophet. His message was forceful. And he calls people to repentance. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here, it's close, it's at hand. You need to repent and change your, your, your mind about this. You need to feel sorrow for your sin. You need to change your attitude. And we have something as well as we are considering the, the subject of, of John's mission, the ultimate goal of his mission. What was the ultimate goal of the mission of, of, um, of John the Baptist? Well, if, if you read the prophecy that Matthew quotes, it's quite clear. Make his paths straight. There is a kingdom coming. There is a king uh, coming to visit his people. You, there needs to be someone making the paths straight. The way of the Lord needs to be portrayed. It needs to be cleared and the way of the Lord is the way of repentance. Turning from sin to righteousness and holiness. Turning from morally and spiritually crooked paths to, to straight, morally straight ones. Listen to the rest of the prophecy. Matthew doesn't quote the whole of it. But it is, it is interesting. And it, it does shed some light to the goal of the mission of John the Baptist. Make straight in the desert, Isaiah says, a, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places shall be made smooth. In many ways, I know this is kind of a crude illustration, but you can think of, uh, of uh, John the Baptist as a sort of traffic warden, directing people this way and no other you're not allowed to turn right now. You're not allowed to, well, in many ways, John the Baptist is not saying continue in this way. John is saying, no, stop here, go back, repent. The way you've been traveling is not the correct way. Turn from your sins, confess them. Hills and valleys needed to become plains. Crooked and out of place paths needed to be straightened. That is what true repentance is. So what was, number three, the manner of John the Baptist? And I need to accelerate a little bit. We're, we're told that he, is, he comes in, in, a, in a manner that so clearly depicts Elijah. It is, associates him with Elijah. Uh, John the Baptist might have, was quite a shocking figure to behold. Try to imagine yourself a nice, uh, 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 an average Jew in Israel in the first century. That's not how you picture a, a religious leader. That's not how you should picture someone uh, uh, who, who speaks for the, from the Lord. You imagine a suit and a tie. You imagine uh, someone who is well-groomed and well-fed and educated and well-traveled. Someone who, And yet, John doesn't look like that. 
It conveys a sense that those things are unimportant to John. That he, in fact, he even made a point of shunning them and turning from them. He lived and preached in the desert. Uh, and I wish I could go more into this desert um, theme, but we'll, we'll speak about it perhaps when we, speak, when we come to the passage of, the, of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. But just the language. Remember that although it is Matthew that writes this, although it is, uh, this is an account, a narrative, it is a, there is a God who is behind the history. Why are the people going out to the wilderness again, you should ask. But I'll refrain from going that way. But John wore this durable, long-lasting dress that was hardly cozy or stylish. He was similar to Elijah. We won't turn there. But in the same way as his wardrobe, his nutrition, what he ate was, was, was very simple. Locusts and wild honey, they are very plain foods that to this day are eaten by Bedouins and by people in the, in the, in the Middle East. The, the, the locusts get dried up and they, then they get uh, fried with some butter. It is a normal thing to eat, uh, albeit very simple and very, uh, and very humble thing to eat. The way that John the Baptist lived is a stark reminder, isn't it? And should be a, a convicting uh, thing for us. Reminding us of the numerous pleasures that we enjoy as, uh, as Christians in this world. They are completely insignificant in light of eternity. John the Baptist does not come to, with a bang, does not come in, dressed up in regal clothing, does not come with trumpets hailing him and with, with big, uh, conference, uh, into big conferences, headlining the, the big uh, Jewish conferences of his day. No, he comes to the wilderness. People come to him and he calls them to repentance. He was not in the circle with the powerful he was not in the, in, the, in the groupings of the great rabbis of his day. He did not preach in the temple. In fact, he did not even preach in the streets of Jerusalem, in the wilderness. But it's in the wilderness, brothers and sisters, that we find that God, more often than not, is providing a blessing. It is true in, in the history of Israel. It is true here. It is true of our own lives. It is in the wilderness that we come to know God as we never knew him. John's message, we just say the mandate he received was to call people to, to repentance and his, and his mandate was to baptize them with water. There was, I need to say this, there was uh, a lot of ritual washings in, the, in, the, in Leviticus, but nothing like this. There was a group that some commentators believe that John the Baptist, and in fact the family of John the Baptist, and it would be the family of our Lord Jesus belonged to, called the Essenes, which was a, a Jewish uh, a separate group, uh, more ascetic, more uh, rugged, uh, a group that saw the evils of, of the, 
uh, of the established Jewish uh, religion and separated themselves. Many believe uh, that John the Baptist belonged to these, but regardless, in the, uh, with the Essenes, there was this practice of being baptized, not just once, but uh, often, even multiple times a day. But John's baptism is not that, is it? John's baptism is a one-time baptism. It is a, a baptism of, for, f- to display the repentance of sin. It's a figure of, uh, of what is true of the person. It doesn't affect the repentance, but of someone who has repented, it, 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 it displays it if, in image. What is interesting, and I said that the Jews had ritual cleansings and the Essenes had multiple cleansings where they would wash themselves multiple times a day. The Jews actually had a sort of baptism or they had a, a, a baptism. And I, I might be wrong, but I think that baptism is connected to this one. Not so much the one from the Essenes nor the ritual of uh, cleansings, but m- more importantly, it was the baptism that was performed on proselytes, on Gentiles that convert to, to, to being Jews, they would be baptized into the Jewish faith. And what is interesting and totally significant, I believe, to, to what is happening with John's baptism is that now the Israelites, upon the call uh, upon understanding their sin and how they've turned from, from the ways of the Lord, they're coming into the wilderness, Exodus, and they're professing, I'm just like a proselyte. I'm not a real Jew. I need to be baptized into the faith. I need to, to be accepted. I need to confess my sins. They come into the kingdom in that way, very much like Gentiles. Through repentance and faith. So what is the message of John the Baptist? He spoke plainly about sin. He spoke uh, plainly about hell. He spoke plainly and urgently about all these things. He spoke about the necessity of repentance. We will at some point, I'm sure, have the opportunity to talk a little bit more to consider what the meaning of repentance is. But his message was plain and simple. So simple that you could summarize it into one word. Repent. Turn. And in that sense, the, the whole uh, scenery of where he's doing this is so fitting the whole language of preparing the way of the Lord, of making straight his paths is so fitting. Man's heart, the heart of mankind outside of God by nature, is a desert. There is no path. There is no way. There is no, no highway. There is a need for, for, for the... For the for the, a precursor for, that, uh, for the king to come. There is a need for th- rocks to be thrown away. But yet when those rocks are thrown away, and I, that for me is a, 
a little bit like repentance. It's, it's the rocks, it's the sins being thrown away. When those rocks are thrown away, then the king comes. And then the king is welcomed into the hearts of men and women. John spoke clearly about God's wrath, his fierce rage against sin. That the, the wrath that would be un, unleashed at the, at the final judgment. He said there is a wrath to come. There is an unquenchable fire that would burn all the chaff. And we must learn this. We must learn that and, and speak. Uh, number one, as believers, we must speak clearly and, and plainly about sin and about uh, the wrath to come and about, and, and about the need for repentance. Because unbelievers need to hear this plain and simple. So often the message gets drowned out. So often we, I drown it out. The world is coming to Christ and they're stumbling over us. We have a terrible tendency to forget this. We so often love to speak about God's love, mercy and grace. That we forget it is a holy, righteous, just God. So let us be careful. Let us learn from John the Baptist. And we read as well from John the Baptist that there were some who who had particular uh, difficulties because of their hypocrisy. Uh, uh, the, the, The hypocrisy of the religious and the political elites. The Sadducees and the Pharisees. I mean... Uh, and someone might have come to John and, uh, and said to him, oh, John, don't you just want to scale that back a little bit? You know, that there's some really important people in the crowd. That, they just came from Jerusalem. It's the Sadducees. They, they, they have access to the governor. Can you just smooth it out a little bit? Just use a little bit less harsh language? It might be that by doing so that you, you'll gain an audience with them. It might be that you can cajole some of the Sadducees into the kingdom by doing that. You brood of vipers, he tells them. You brood of vipers. I don't think there's words that are less inviting and pleasing than coming to this rugged... Uh, I don't know if rugged is the correct term here. It's the one that this, this man dressed in camel's hair with a leather belt, very uh, uh, clothing that would last long because if you're in the desert, you need clothing that, that can withstand the elements. This man perhaps, with, with, it's usually depicted or imagined as someone with long hair. We don't know. We're not told. But and the, here come these respectable individuals, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I don't think they were coming, and I'm not alone with this in, a, in, a, in thinking. I don't think they were coming to be baptized. or uh, They were probably coming from Jerusalem to have a look at what was going on so that they could tell the other people there what's going on. But, and what does John say? You brood of vipers, you hypocrites. Repent. 
You cannot hide yourself. John knew all about the vipers and the snakes in the desert. He knew... He, I'm sure he knew how they behaved. A little bit of fire, and they hear, or a little bit of thing, something happening. A little bit of water, and they, there they are. There they are. And yet he tells them, unless you produce fruits worthy of repentance, you'll perish. The fruits are not the changed heart. The, the heart changes, and then the fruits. Come, and he tells him, do not say that you have Abraham for your father. Do not think just because you, you have the blood of Abraham in, running through your veins that you'll be saved. He will not save you. Salvation does not flow through blood in the veins. However, those who are true children of Abraham, they have faith like Abraham do not think that in, in many ways, if they thought like this, and they did, and, and, but if they expressed it like this, they would be expressing something along the lines of God needs us. Well, God promised to Abraham that he would save uh, and, and raise up a great nation. In that way, we're safe because we're, we're, we're Abraham's nation. God needs us. And what does John say to them? Do not think just because you are Abraham's son that you're... In the clear. You know why? Because God can raise up sons to Abraham from these stones. And in fact, he did. He did. Do not think that because you come to this baptism, uh, something will, will be affected. No, John says. You need fruits. John's message was clear. God's destruction for repentant sinners is inevitable and is imminent. Like an axe laid at the root is there. It's happening. And he, it's, as if he, it's as if he sees it in this mental image. He's seeing a whole forest. And the, the, the tree cutter is there. And he's looking. This one doesn't produce good fruit. Pick up the axe. Chop it down. Judgment. And yet, John spoke clearly and plainly about salvation as well. You, don't, you cannot have the good news of the gospel if you don't have the bad news. And he was strong on the bad news, but he was equally strong on the good news. The, the lower you bring man, the higher you exalt God. And what does he say? He speaks clearly about Jesus Christ. He says, someone mightier than I is coming. And yes, I baptize you with water for repentance, but there is one who can cleanse you from the deepest in your innermost. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I'm just a herald. I'm just someone pointing you the way. Here's, there is one coming. Behold, he said on another occasion, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And even as he preaches this, he preaches so beautifully and simply and plainly about assurance of salvation. That those who come to trust in Christ, that they are safe and secure 
That even though they live in a wicked age where the chaff and the wheat seem to be intermingled, there is a time where the, 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 the husbandman comes and with a, with a winnowing fork, he throws, throws it up in the air and he clears up. Because when this is how they did it, they, they, with the wheat, they, they would pick up the grain and in the, in the breeze they would throw it up and the chaff which is so much uh, lighter than the, the precious worthy uh, and valuable grain uh, would be blown away and the grain would fall and, and it says and John says that he will gather them together in the, into the barn that is the security of the believer those that are his, those that have come to repent, confess and trust in him and him alone, they are the wheat that he will bring into his barn on the last day. And we need to be reminded of this, brethren. We still live in this wicked world. We still in, in, inhabit a, a, a body of death. We are still tempted. We are still under the attack of Satan. But looking to Christ, looking to him who is the mighty one, we are reminded that we are reassured continually that Jesus will never abandon us, that will never leave us nor forsake us, that in Jesus' hands we are safer than Noah was in the ark when the great flood came rushing through. That's how safe we are. And finally... The motive. And I'll be brief here because time is past. Why did John do all of this? Because he knew, at least in part, perhaps not fully, but he knew at least in part the, the nature of his cousin. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. But he knew, at least in parts, that his cousin was more than just a man. I don't know how fully he realized the divinity of Christ. We know that Matthew knows it from reading the, the Gospel of Matthew. I don't know how much he knew, but he understood it enough. He says that he came to make straight the way for the Lord. And if you would turn to that passage, we, uh, if you would turn there, you would find that the way of the Lord that Isaiah refers to is the way of God. And either John the Baptist was very confused about Isaiah or he was very well aware of who he was standing before when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He knew that he was the Lord, the incarnate God. And that's why he says he must increase and I must decrease. That's why he's so consistent in his message that he is someone who is much greater than I. That's why he says, I can do some things. I can call you to repentance. I can, I can hear, you con uh, hear you confess. I can even baptize you with water. But... There is one coming who is able to cleanse you within. There is one coming. The king is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. It's him. 
It's him. Listen to the to the words of Isaiah. It's very interesting that so many of critics nowadays say that oh the, the the divinity of Christ, Christ being God, was a later invention. It was only at the time of John the the, the synoptic gospels or the, the writers of the other gospels were not so uh, clear on the divinity of Christ. It doesn't seem to me that Matthew was that unclear. Listen to the whole of the prophecy or the the part that is not quoted. Every valley shall be exalted. And every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked place shall be made low and shall be made straight. And the rough places smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. The glory of the Lord. When you behold, and John knew this, when I behold this cousin of mine, he's not just a man. He's not just a prophet like I am. He's the glory of the Lord revealed so that every eye can see and so that every tongue would confess that he is Lord of Lords for the glory of God. So John's message exalts God rather than himself. And whatever, brothers and sisters, our message should be, whatever uh, we explain our message, it is not ours, is it? It is not our gospel. It is not our, our, our message. It is not within ourselves. We are not the message. And in that sense, following from the, the words of, Ma- of John in Matthew, the, the gospel is not the church. You can come here. It doesn't save you. Just like the baptism of John did not effect repentance or the fruits of repentance. You can be the son of, of a believer. You can be the, the daughter of a believer, grandson, a, a, a nephew. You can be uh, the husband or the wife of a believer. It does not save you. It does not run in the blood. The message that saves you is repent and believe. Turn to God. And he will save you. Because John immersed in water, baptized with water for repentance. But there is one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And it's him that we need. May he increase. And may we decrease. May he grow. And may we 